Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. Good afternoon, and welcome to Ask a Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me tonight, as always, is Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello! Uh, so today in Wisconsin, it is one degree Fahrenheit out, and... Uh, it is not spring-like. Yes, the snow is faintly falling and falling faintly on all of the cheese heads and a few Bears fans who managed to sneak in and things like that. But Yay. Uh, <laughs> I'm excited to talk about the spring, which seems extremely far away. Yes. I, we're told Ooh. by um, the groundhog. By a groundhog? Yeah, that it's six yes. weeks. Five weeks, I guess, from now, but... It occurs to me we should have a thing about, like, groundhog and other animal-related things. Yes. Yeah. But yes, the groundhog seeing his shadow, which is presumably kind of like death. <laughs> not death. Right? <laughs> Depending on if he sees it or not. Okay. You know, Persephone going down to Hades. Like, when, when is that portion of the year over? Yeah. <laughs> but yes, I want to say that even in Richmond, Virginia, it's actually freezing drizzle. Yikes. So, Yeah. I mean, that's rare weather for down here, so. Mm -hmm. You got to be careful. Uh, nobody knows how to drive in right. places. <laughs> the funny thing is everything just closes mm -hmm. because because of that reason. Yes. Um, which is kind of funny. I mean, it's great, though, if you're willing to go out in it because you're from somewhere like Chicago because there's nobody out. Yeah. So... Yeah, that's kind of fantastic. But also then everything is closed. Yeah. So it's kind of a mixed bag. Yeah. But. But anywho. <laughs> yes. So the groundhog has told us that spring is probably far away. Yeah. <laughs> that being said, we are talking about holidays that come, like they're not dependent on weather, mm -hmm. I think is important to say. These are yeah. holidays that come no matter what. <laughs> yes. We're going to talk about um, May Day, which is officially May 1st, I think. Yep. And so yes. that will come whether or not the snow has melted, which usually it has. 100% but... <laughs> yes. Yes. But I definitely, like, uh, 1998, the spring of 98, it definitely snowed in May mm -hmm. in the suburbs of Chicago. Um, and also a bit in Wisconsin, I think. So, yeah. yeah. You know. It can. <laughs> yeah, it usually doesn't stick for too long, but... It doesn't stick, that's so, yeah, yeah, but it can. My, my birthday yes. is May 3rd, and I've definitely had snow on my birthday before, so... Yes. Good times. Um, also, on your wedding... Yes. There was snow in the vicinity. Mm-hmm. It snowed the, during the rehearsal dinner. Yes, because that afternoon, it was like 60 degrees. And by the time we went to the rehearsal dinner, it was like 40 degrees. Yes. And then we left, and it was like 30 degrees. Yes. <laughs> yep. I will say that all the bridesmaids did a really good job of not looking incredibly angry in the photographs that we took outside, despite yes. the fact that everyone was wearing strapless dresses. Well, we did have those great scarves. That yeah. So, that worked as shawls, actually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yep. That's what you have to do. Good times. Um, yay. Yes, that's why we went with June. It could have been pouring, but it wasn't. Yeah. And it was warm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, so we are starting sort of with the lead up, because, of course, um, 
you know, we started this podcast almost a year ago with the plague and then with Easter. Yes. So we are starting almost immediately post-Easter with something that's kind of specific to England. Um, and Or the British Isles, I should say, actually. Um, and this is Hocktide. Okay. Hocktide. Yes. I haven't heard of that one at all. <laughs> yes. This is kind of fun because it was really big um, for a long time. And then it probably st- it probably kind of died out, not so much because it was stamped out, although it was a little bit, um, but more because actually modern industrial programming or whatever, um, you get weekends off, right? And so suddenly the need for festivals where you would not have to work was a little bit different because, ah. you know, like, <laughs> you don't always have to work. I mean, like, you have weekends. So um, we should actually blame the modern union movement for destroying yes. Hocktide. <laughs> right. Or, you know, industry in general. I mean, also then people aren't in the country there, you know, and the point was sort of, like, you can have a festival anywhere, of course, but it was... Um, maybe a little bit about, like, not having to plow or whatever you did that mm-hmm. day, not having to sow, not having to work your land, basically, for a few days. Um, and, of course, it was also to get everything out after Easter. Um, but at this point, you know, with weekends, yes, you have had more time to do that. Um, so, essentially, the origin and the name are completely unknown. Like, no. where it came from, we just don't really know. But... Um, Easter, of course, happens whenever it happens, right? It's an, it's not a fixed holiday. Right. Um, and the octave, so the eight days after Easter, which is to say the Monday through the Sunday after Easter, um, that is, that's the Easter octave, right? So that is sort of its own post-Easter. It's still kind of a holy time because of Easter. Okay. You know. Um, well, the Monday and the Tuesday following that. Mm-hmm. So it's the second Monday and Tuesday after Easter. You have Easter Sunday, you have the f- following week, Easter, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, you have the following Sunday, which ends the octave. And then you have the next Monday and Tuesday. This is Hocktide, is sort of that week or so, but particularly Monday and Tuesday. Tuesday was Hock Day. Okay. You know, tide, of course, means time. Mm-hmm. So this is hock time. Hock day itself was Tuesday. Um, but that Monday and Tuesday were kind of an extra, you know, today we would say bank holiday. Ah, uh, yes. Um, well, the British would. But, yes. Which, of course, is why, you know, the actual bank holidays kind of made things like this unnecessary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so anyway, so hock tide. Um, and what this is, it's also very much like, um, the various misrule things that happen around Christmas. Okay. So in our Christmas episode, we definitely talked about, you know, misrule, uh, I think Feast of Fools, like some of those things that happen, um, kind of boy bishops around St. Nicholas Day, stuff like that. So the topsy-turviness that happens, Mm -hmm. right? Um, and of course, this is something that happens right before Lent as well, like Mardi Gras, of course, is... That's what that's for. <laughs> um, so you can get it all out before Lent. Okay, then you have Lent, which is long, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have the whole Easter season, which is not just Easter, but also like then the week after and stuff. So it's been a long time since you've really 
gotten to blow off steam. Right. So that is also what this is for, right? And it's very much a kind of misrule possibility. Um, and Catherine French has a great article about this um, called To Free Them from Binding, Women in the Late Medieval English Parish. Um, and so this started, this is why we don't know the origins, because the origins are pretty clearly not official exactly. So we know that by 1450, it's associ- this holiday is associated with parishes. So there are parishes now celebrating this um, sort of more officially. Okay. Right. Um, but pretty clearly it started unofficially. This may have been a, it's unclear, but this may have been a kind of like, if you can't beat them, join them on the part of the church. Um, because, which might be why we just don't have any idea about the, the origins. You know, sure. it's something that <laughs> by the time people are, it's official and people are writing about it, we just have no idea where it came from. Or why it's called this, either. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, the Bishop of Worcester, John Carpenter, <laughs> writes a letter to um, his almoner, the guy who is in charge of passing out alms. Um, and he condemns the holiday. Oh. He says it's, you know, a noxious corruption, a sign of spiritual illness. Um, <laughs> and this is all quoted in French's article, but he, this is okay. the great quote. Okay. So you'll also get a sense of what they do and that I will explain it more fully. But um, so how on one set day, usually, alas, when the solemn feast of Easter has ended, women feign to bind men. And on another or the next day, men feign to bind women and to do other things. Would that they were not dishonorable or worse in full view of passersby, even pretending to increase church profit, but earning loss, literally damnation for the soul under false pretenses. So in other words, they pretend they're raising money for the church, but of course, actually, they are losing their souls. Okay. Okay. Um, Continue with the quote, many scandals arise from the occasion of these activities and adulteries and other outrageous crimes are committed as a clear offense to God, a very serious danger to the souls of those committing them and pernicious example to others. All right. Um, And the bishop demands that all his parishioners cease and desist from these bindings and unsuitable pastimes on these hitherto days commonly called hock days. And so there we go. Um, and anyone who was caught participating in this holiday was going to supposed to go before his court. They're going to be brought before the consistory court specifically, which meant uh, sexual infractions, basically. Okay. Um, yeah. So. <laughs> so like um, spring break. Yes. Well, um, even more interesting. And I'll say, by the way, this is also quoted in full in um the Reed volume, that's Records of Early English Drama, um, for Herefordshire and Worcestershire. Worcestershire. <laughs> of course, like the sauce, right? Spelled Worcester. not the way it sounds. Yeah. yeah. So Herefordshire and Worcestershire. Um, this is all quoted out. Um, so anyway. Um, yeah. And the idea was, amongst many of the misrule things that went on, um, that usually on Monday, the usual thing, although some... parishes switched the days and in some cases men didn't end up doing it at all but the usual thing was that women on monday women chased men tied them up and released them upon payment of a forfeit and then on tuesday men did the same to women oh um yeah although and this is all again still from french um and she says you know some some parishes 
sometimes the only the women did it. Sometimes the days were reversed, but generally, women did on Monday, men on Tuesday. And this is obviously sort of how Carpenter, the bishop, understands it as well. Okay. Um, and the, the forfeit was then given to the church, right? So the money that was paid—that's why this is ostensibly to raise money for the parish. <laughs> You know, like your church okay. needs a new roof or a yeah. new gargoyle or whatever it needs, right? Um, more alms, you know. Um, so this was sort of the idea. Um, and obviously, that's why the bishop is like, they say that they are helping the church, but of course, they're actually losing their souls. Uh-huh. Because, um, you know, to give money to the church was a way of kind of buying some penance or something for the afterlife, right? Um And his idea is that they're not only not doing that, that they're actively losing their souls by doing this. And, of course, you can see what he hates is, you know, (laughs) he calls it adultery. Um, It is obviously not that in, by definition, of course. But, you know, yeah, the idea that the men chase the women and tie them up, but certainly, probably the worst part of it for him, the fact that the women chase the men and tie them up. Yeah. Right. Um, and this is actually why French's article really sort of is interested in the ways in which this is a reminder of how women really participated kind of in the life of a parish, um, and gender roles are not always what we thought of them and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so <laughs> um, this is kind of the, you know, this is one of those interesting um, misrule. It's it goes with the whole topsy-turvy thing, right? You need the release after you've had this long period of Lent and Easter. You need to, like, blow off some steam, obviously. Mm-hmm. But the funny thing that it is also very, very tied to gender roles, right? Uh, other things we've come across have been tied usually to class. Right. Sometimes sometimes to age, right? This is very much about gender, um, which is very interesting. Um, and clearly not something that everybody likes. Um but also maybe why, because it is so, it's not in any obvious way religious, <laughs> even though it's tied kind of to the parishes. Right. Um, and tied to the season. Nonetheless, you can see why it would last and not get stamped out the way an obviously Catholic tradition might have been in England. Right. Yes. So that's Hock Day. So this is, you know, so after Easter, this is one of the first things you get to do. Um, again, this is kind of specific to England, but there we are. So some fun. Yeah. Um, so this is, and Easter is usually like April, right? So this is kind of generally, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mid, I guess we'd call it mid spring. Yes. Yeah. And it could kind of run up near, this is the question, right? You wouldn't quite know when it was going to happen. Right. Um, so it could run up near our other spring holiday that we're going to talk about, which is St. George's Day. Okay. Which is, of course, April 23rd. Um, Shakespeare famously dies on April 23rd and may have been born on April 23rd. He's baptized on the 26th, so he was born presumably on the 23rd or 24th. Um, you know, we say, of course, that he was born and died on the 23rd because it's poetic, particularly because it is St. George's Day and he is the patron saint of England, so it's just perfect, you know. Right. Um, but St. George, it is worth pointing out, is really popular across all of Christianity at the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, he is a huge saint. And he's one of the saints that the East and the West, which is to say sort of the Orthodox Church, Byzantine, you know, all of the all of the denominations really have in common. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, St. George is beloved. Um, and he's everywhere. So he is one of the things that kind of unifies them occasionally. Um, 
And there was actually, you know, there was a possibility he was going to be demoted. The, there was a big house cleaning kind of around Vatican II. And then again, kind of coming up on the millennium recently. Oh, yes. You know, in the 90s. They got rid of some of the people who there didn't seem to be, like, actual evidence that they had existed, right? Yes. Like, maybe St. Christopher or something? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, they all get demoted, is what happens. Who is also a very popular one. Yeah. So, yes. And they don't officially, usually, like, actually nullify them. Like, they don't necessarily mm-hmm. decanonize them. But they do demote them. So they are no longer part of sort of the global calendar, or even necessarily a local calendar. So people, that's the thing, right? St. Christopher is really important to so many people. Mm-hmm. So they didn't say you have to stop, like, praying to him on a journey or whatever. However, um, you know, he's kind of... Maybe Yeah, they kind of put him away on a top shelf. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes, and they acknowledge that he probably is not real. He is based on, you know, possibly Atlas, um, Hercules, right? The legends of these gods and titans and so on who had to carry the world. Mm -hmm. And that's the image, right? Christopher means, Christophero in Greek means carried Christ. Ah, okay. So the ostensible thing was like little, he's a toddler at this point, I guess, because he can probably walk, maybe? I don't know. Whatever. So Christ, as a toddler-ish, arrives um, at the banks of a river, and Christopher carries him across on his shoulders, and when he gets on his shoulders, like he, fe- Christopher feels like he has the weight of the world on his shoulders. Okay. Um. So you can see, right, because Christ, of course, symbolizes the world. Um, you know, he is God of the world. And so, but, um, you can see, of course, why this symbolizes, you know, Atlas or Hercules, who had to carry the globe. Um, technically, Atlas holds up the sky. Yes, yes, don't add us. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> whatever. Um, so, but this idea, right? So, um, Hercules, you know, uh, takes over for a short time as one of his things. But anyway, so, th- so it does seem very much based on those legends brought into Christianity. But this is why he's also a patron for travelers, because obviously, right, he helps the travelers, right? So, um, yeah, so he's important. But yes, he gets demoted. There was a talk they were going to demote St. George, because he also does not have a lot of historical basis. Um, He seems to be kind of the human form of St. Michael, the archangel, right, who fought Satan in heaven in the war in heaven. Oh, okay. I didn't know archangels could be, I mean, he's already an angel, right? But he can also be a saint. Yep, but he is Saint Michael the Archangel. Oh, okay. Yep. Because he's an important one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and archangels are the ones who talk to people, right? There's a huge, you know, there are lots of orders of angels. Right. We can have Kate Messler in some time at least. Yeah. <laughs> have a whole thing on this. But um, so archangels are the, one of the lowest orders. And they, angel means messenger in Greek. Right, so it's the word that was used for messenger in the Greek Bible, the New Testament. Ang- Angelos something. Yeah, and that is how angels become, right, they're messengers okay. from God, but sure. that is why we call them angel in English. <laughs> okay. And not something else, right, because that is the word used in the Greek New Testament, and that has then gets imported sort of by language. Okay. Which is to say it's not retranslated to messenger, everyone just decides that they're going to be called angels. <laughs> Um, 
Otherwise, we'd call them messengers, I guess. That would be, you know. Hmm. Um, but anyhow, so, um, yeah, so the, so archangels are one of the lower orders that do, in fact, bring messages to people. They do talk to people. This is why they can intercede. This is why they can be saints. Um, but Saint Michael also is the one who kind of leads the charge in heaven in the battle against Lucifer, Satan, whoever. Um, okay. And so Saint George and the dragon is clearly an allegory for that, right? Satan is the dragon. Oh, okay. Um, and that's clearly supposed to be true. I mean, that's not, you know, but the idea was, of course, that there had been this knight on Earth who had been like that. But had there been? Meh, mm. Probably not. Right. Kind of like Christopher. So there's a little bit of discussion of demoting him. But uh, this ended up not happening. France was really pissed um, because England, of course, is not a Catholic country. Mm -hmm. And France is. And um, Joan of Arc is one of the ones who was kind of demoted. Uh, to a local cult. So she's, you know, she's a patron saint. They didn't denounce her or anything, but right. they took her off kind of the global calendar. Like, Catholics around the world don't have to uh, celebrate her. But we know that she's a real person. Yes, exactly. You can see why mm. France was annoyed. Yes. <laughs> um, but St. George was not taken off the global calendar because, um, as I said, other denominations also love him. Right. Mm. So it would have also been it's not so much that it was an insult to England. It's that it would have been an insult also to like Orthodox Christianity. Right. Other forms of Christianity that the yeah. Catholic Church would like to be on good terms with. They didn't want to insult them. OK. <laughs> so um, so St. George is still good, you know, even though he's presumably not historical. Um, but his day has always been popular. It's, in, you know, of course, it's incredibly popular. Yeah. Not just in England. I mean, he's a great. He is their saint, but he's just a great story, right? He is a knight who slays the dragon. Like, he is the er story mm -hmm. of the knight who slays the dragon. He's the one who does it. <laughs> okay. Right? So, yeah. um, so he's the dude, right? Presumably he does this to rescue a maiden from a castle or whatever. I mean, from the dragon. But, um, you know, Shrek will, of course, recreate this eventually. Mm -hmm. I mean... It has been told many times in many ways. I think we have a book about um, a knight and a dragon, but at the end they maybe open a barbecue restaurant together. Yes! Oh, I love that one. It's a picture book. By Tommy DiPoiola. Yeah. Yes! I was going to say, he at least illustrates it. Did he also write it? Your I think mom so. might have been yeah. the one who sent it to us. I think she probably was. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, that is one of my faves. Um, yeah. Let's see. Um, yeah, The Knight and the Dragon. Yeah. Um, by Tommy DePaola. Yeah, it's so much fun. It's a very popular around here right yes. now. Um, and of course, you know, he's Italian, Catholic. Mm -hmm. Um, this is, yeah, he definitely do St. George, right? <laughs> yeah. This is a happier, a much happier ending. Um, it is worth reminding, of course, like, as much as everyone has always loved dragons, in the Middle Ages, dragons are considered to be kind of symbolic of Satan. So uh, in the future, we'll have an episode, we'll talk about St. Margaret, who also slays a dragon. Um, you know, dragons are symbolic. They're allegorical, you know. Okay. Um, obviously, they're awesome, but yes. So anyway, um, St. George celebrations happen lots of places. And of course, the fun thing about them, and the reason we're talking about them, is that you get big sort of, you know, parades or street festivals, stuff like this. Um, and usually you do also get a dragon, which is the awesome part, right? There are oh. lots of pageants that are attached to this. Okay. Yes. 
And of course, the the goal is for pretty much any St. George celebration to reenact this um, with St. George and a dragon. Um, And so uh, Philip Butterworth has a fantastic article. He's written about this a lot, so we'll put some of the citations in the notes. Um, But he has a great article that is specifically um, about the dragons. It's called Late Medieval Performing Dragons. Oh, okay. (laughs) Good title. Yes. And so um, he discusses the, there's a church in London that burned down, I think, in the fire of London. But, um, you know, we're talking about the Middle Ages, so this is before that. Anyway, so St. Bartolf had a model of St. George and a dragon built in 1474, where this was an entire model that, like, enacted the scene. So basically St. George on his horse on one end of kind of a wooden plank with a rail or something, and the dragon on the other end, and someone... And then there was a castle at the end, uh, some side also, and the operator stood behind the castle and turned a crank, and the dragon and St. George, like, ran at each other, um, and St. George's arm made it look like he was stabbing the dragon. Oh. Yes. Clever. Um, Yeah. So that's a pretty early example. Um, the Latrell Psalter, which we've definitely mentioned before, mm-hmm. which is, I think, kind of circa 1340, um, includes an image of a dragon on wheels that looks very much like a pageant dragon. It's got just two wheels on either side where kind of its back legs would be. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it looks very clearly like a sort of modified cannon, basically, that's been covered and turned into a dragon. But that kind of shape, you know? Okay. Um, and it only has a tongue coming out in, the, in that image. But the interesting thing is it looks almost exactly like an image um, from uh, hundreds of years later. Um, Bruegel, the elder, so they're, you know, the Bruegels, yes. there are a lot of them. They're Dutch, Flemish, they're painters, painters etc. Yeah. Yes. Um, so Peter, the, the elder, um, created a print that or created a drawing that got turned into a print engraving. So he doesn't do it himself, but um, but he made this, he created it, basically. Um, called the Fair of St. George's Day from about 1559. And he has a um, dragon in there that, you know, it looks basically like um, the dragon from the Latrell Psalter. Oh, okay. Um, and so that's, you know, hundreds of years later. Um, it's worth pointing out there's some really strong trading uh, relationships between the English and the Flemish, the Dutch. Um, and so, and there's actually a bit of a melding or a sharing, an interchange, maybe, of certain aspects of their performing, you know, mm-hmm. tr- traditions, rituals, <laughs> stuff like that. Um, so it's not at all impossible that this, you know... Um, that a design could have been influenced back and forth. Who knows? Um, but also, you know, this is kind of a an obvious shape for a dragon to kind of build it on what a cannon might look like, um, particularly if you're going to try and shoot fire out of it. Oh, which, yeah. Yeah, sure. which Bruegel's looks like it does have fire coming out of it. Hmm. Yeah. Um, yes, and the fire, so this is the fun thing, right? Um, fire would have been kind of the medieval equivalent of either, you know, and it depended how sturdy your dragon was and how many people were nearby, right? <laughs> so if you expected people to be far away, you could use the equivalent of like a firework. Um, otherwise, it was going to be more like a sparkler or a firecracker, right? To just shoot it out its mouth, but not actually like... Oh, yeah. Spray the crowd. <laughs> um, 
But the interesting thing is, like, at least by the 1500s, they knew how to make certain colors. Oh, sure. Right? You'd mix certain compounds into the gunpowder. Yeah. Um, they could get green and yellow, maybe some other things. Obviously not the range you get in fireworks today by any stretch of the imagination. But they could get some colors. So that was definitely part of it. Um, John Babington, who wrote a book of pyrotechnia. In 1635, describes a dragon on wheels that will propel itself once you've lit the rocket. Oh, okay. So for his, his starts in a cave, um, and the operator, of course, is presumably in the cave and lights it, and then the dragon propels itself out of the cave. Oh. Um, and it's presumably on a rail or something, right? But it, it's under its own steam. The, the f- rocket is now the fire, but also the... Mm-hmm. Propellant. You know, Mythbusters did stuff like this all the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, you just have to make sure it's built well enough and tied down well enough and, you know. Just keep it away from yeah. all the houses with thatched roofs and you're good. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Um, so Norwich in England um, has had a dragon since the 1400s. Oh. Um their Guild of St. George was founded in 1385 and got its charter in 1417. Um, and they have had a dragon this whole time. Now, we don't know if the dragon has always looked the same. Mm-hmm. But they still have a dragon today. Oh. The dragon they have today is the same dragon they've had since at least the 1800s. Because <laughs> they're actual photographs of it. Oh, I was going to um, say. In, like, the late 1800s. In a ship of Theseus sort of manner, it... It could potentially be the same dragon. Right. I mean, they clearly rebuilt it all the time, and we know that from records. Yeah. The question is just, the design description in, like, the 15 and 1600s could fit the way it looks today. Mm-hmm. Right? You just don't know. Right. But it certainly could. Um, and it's it, it still exists. Um, since the 1800s, it's been named Snap Snap. Okay. <laughs> or Snap, Snap the Snapdragon. Okay. Yes. Anyway, and it's, I mean, this is just me estimating based on sort of the photographs of people standing next to it, but I'd say it's its about eight feet, maybe a little more with the tail. Like oh, wow. the tail is just a real long rod, basically. Um, yeah, but it's pretty long. It's pretty big. Um, and then the, in addition to all of this, right, so there are lots of ways you could do this. Um, and of course, the point was you'd have this, you'd have a parade, you have a festival, and at some point you would have St. George fight the dragon. Right. Um, and so, but the dragon was clearly the highlight. Yeah. Usually. <laughs> like, your dragon was really important. Um, wherever you were, right? If you were in, you know, if you were Flemish, if you were British, um, your dragon was important. So, um, there were also possibilities if you wanted more of an actual pageant with, like, lines, like, if you wanted more of a play, um, you could have an actor in the dragon more like a hobby horse. Oh, okay. Where you'd be kind of wearing it. Yeah. Um, and in that case, you there were still ways for you to shoot fire out its mouth. It wasn't necessarily a danger to the person wearing it. You just, of course, would never want to do it when you were too close to, like, St. George. Right. <laughs> for example. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so St. George's Day, the Feast of St. George's Day, um, were definitely kind of a big thing. Um, again, of course, there are people who complained, but... I think they're always. Yes, right. But this was another good holiday that you had to, like, blow off some steam, have some fun, fireworks, you know. Blow things up, yeah. Yes, who doesn't like pyrotechnics? Um, a dragon. Yeah. Um, so this is also part of sort of the spring festivaling going on. Yeah. Um, 
And then finally, right, so that's April 23rd. Yeah. So you see, right, we're getting close here. Um, and then, of course, May Day, yeah, is in fact the first. May 1st. Um, it's good to point out um, hobby horses could also be part of any festival, including May Day. Um, just, you know, dragons are kind of specific to St. George. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that idea of a costume is... Very common. Mm -hmm. All right. So, <laughs> um, unlike the two things we've just talked about, which are very medieval and clearly very specific kind of to medieval Europe, um, you can't have a St. George's Day before St. George. It's, you know, it's right. very much based on his story of the dragon. Like, that's what it's about. Um, hawk days are specific to England, and we don't even really know what happened. I mean, who knows where it came right. from. Yeah. Um, May Day has a lot more history. Mm hmm <laughs> um, so this goes back to things we've said about Halloween, some of what we've said about Christmas. Um, this is the beginning of summer, is what this is. Right? So this is supposed to be the beginning of summer. Um, and there are a number of festivals that predate what we would call May Day in the medieval period. Um, one of them is Gaelic. So um, as with Samhain... Which we, of course, discussed with Halloween as being service and critic. Um, Beltane is on or around May 1st um, and celebrated in Ireland, Scotland, Isle of Man, right? These places. Um, and it's the beginning of summer, right? Sowing, of okay. course, is the harvest. It's sort of, right? Um, this is the beginning of summer. And a lot of similar things. You have like bonfires. Which are a big part of the ritual, right? Because fire is sacred, it's purifying, it's dangerous. Um, fire is, of course, also allowed for feasting because you can, like, cook stuff on them. Sure. Um, so bonfires are big in, you know, most of the sort of um, Gaelic festivals mm -hmm. that you've got. Um, but May Day is definitely also one of those. Um, this is also, <laughs> I mean, where you start to get, um, you know... This is where much later people come up with rituals like sort of, um, you know, Shirley Jackson's The Lottery or The Wicker Man or mm. stuff like that, right? Um, a lot of those are, again, the sense... There's some sort of sacrifice. Yes. Yeah. Um, and in this case, of course, right, you think fertility, right? This is a fertility festival because it's the beginning of summer. You need, right, spring fertility because you need everything to plant and to bud but summer is when you're actually going to be everything's right. going to be growing right you want the corn to be <laughs> however high by the fourth of july etc um so yes i mean there's definitely sort of that there's fertility clearly embedded in all of these festivals this is very much a fertility festival for everybody um there's not necessarily sacrificing but there are rituals a lot of rituals regarding mm -hmm. fire because yeah you know, fire is warming, it's dangerous, it's purifying, all of these things. Um, so, the you know, the Gaelic Festival is does become kind of syncretic, of course, because um, in parts of the world that would have also celebrated it. Um, yeah. So another sort of May Day festival, this time um, Roman, um, is for the goddess Flora, basically. Okay. The fl who is the floral goddess? Right? This is where we get the term. <laughs> Romans often had pretty straightforward names for their goddesses. Yes. Their deities in general, I guess. It also helps that, of course, we 
like that's our language, right? So oh, most of yeah. these words came down to us, <laughs> right? Like flora, well, flower, floral. Oh well, right? English. Yeah. Okay. I was yeah. gonna say it, we're a Germanic language, but but are we? We're a lot of. I mean, yes, things. but we're not. <laughs> yeah. Not, nobody has ever won the battle of. I'm going to argue for the purity of the English language. So. Nope. And we're proudly the most um, spongy <laughs> language out there. We will suck up anything. Yeah. Which is why there's so many words in English, which is kind of awesome. Yes. Um, but anyhow, so, yeah, so Floralia um, is, you know, if you like Lupercalia and whatever, mm-hmm. you know. Anyway, so this is for Flora. Um, this is her festival. Um, according to Pliny, the Elder, uh, Natural History, um, Chapter 18, Paragraph 286, I think. Hmm. Um, he sort of talks about the founding of this, that basically in 240 BCE, um, a festival was instituted in honor of the goddess Flora um, on April 28th of, this is by the Julian calendar, right. um, to ensure a favorable, favorable season for blossoms and flowers. Right. So, you know, yeah. flora. <laughs> right. To ensure that thing, all these things grow. Um, in 230, so that's 240, and 238, so a couple years, so two years later, because, right, this is BCE, so we're counting down. Um, so two years later, 238, a temple is erected to Flora. Um, and sh- this festival lasts about a week, so sort of the April 28th, like, maybe May 3rd mm-hmm. or something, right? So it is over May Day. That's kind of the point. Um, and, you know, you've got games, ludi, um, and of, you know, a variety of stuff. It's clearly a fertility festival. Um, later you get sort of rumors and stories that, uh, prostitutes or maybe actresses who weren't necessarily <laughs> prostitutes, I guess, uh, performed naked during the, f- the during the festival, you know, okay. um, the part of the, you know, the plays performed during the festival that you were supposed to perform naked. Um, there's a story that like Cato walked out during one, um, you know, maybe <sighs> we're, I acknowledge that these rumors are out there. Did they happen? Uh, you know. Whatever. Anyway, um, but this is how the festival was thought of, right? As of, I mean, it becomes described eventually as what we would call a very pagan fertility festival, right? So lots of nudity and sex and flowers, you know. Sure. Sex on rose petals or whatever. Okay. But not roses because that's that was that wasn't the thing. But like honeysuckle or something, mm-hmm. right? Um. Anyway. Okay. So clearly, this is getting towards what May Day will be. Right. It is very much about fertility. It's sort of the flowers um, seen as, of course, signs of fertility and love and therefore sex. Right. This is why we still give flowers on Valentine's Day or on date night or yeah, whatever. Right. <laughs> um, it's a weird thing, but it's got this ancient symbolism behind it. Um, yeah. So so this is definitely also part of it. This is the time of year it happens. Obviously, the Roman Empire will become basically the Christian Empire. So, yeah. <laughs> um, there's some definite crossover there for most of Europe. And there we are. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. The final sort of really fun one. I love this one. Um, is St. Walpurga, who's um, actually... English, but um, evangelizes the German-speaking areas of Europe. She's canonized on May 1st, 870. Um, This is CE, right? So, of course, she's Christian. This is the common era. Yeah. Um, So she's early, but not super early. I mean, this is definitely 
you know, <laughs> solid yeah. history time here. Um, so 870, yeah. So May 1st, she is Canada. So May 1st becomes her day. Um, she becomes seen as a protection against witchcraft. And it's not entirely clear if this is before or after Walpurgis Eve, which is to say, possibly better known as Walpurgisnacht, becomes known as kind of the main witch's Sabbath. Oh. Yeah. And it's a little bit interesting. It's kind of like Halloween, right? All Hallows Eve becomes seen as this day of ghosts and goblins, right? Because on All Hallows Day, the day of all saints, November 1st, um, the idea is kind of it's too holy, they can't come out, right? So they kind of come out in strength oh, the night before. Okay. Right. Um, but it's it's not entirely clear, like, does this become, does April 30th, basically, does Valpurgis Eve, Valpurgis Nacht, become seen as the witch's Sabbath, the sort of main, you know, their, like, biggest night of the year? Um, because the idea is that then the next day is the day of St. Valpurga, mm -hmm. where they have to, like, where all of their power gets kind of shattered. So they kind of save it up all year. They have this huge night. And then the next night they kind of lose everything and they have to start over again. Um, or does she become seen as the saint who protects against witches because Valpurgis Nacht, which happens to be the night before, is already kind of seen as this day? Oh. Um, I don't think anyone quite knows. I think the assumption is basically that it happens because of her. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. that. There's kind of a history there that I think is unclear. Hmm. So we're going to just acknowledge that that is a bit unclear, but Valpurgis Nacht becomes famously, famously kind of the big witch's Sabbath, you know, the biggest of the year. Um, there's tons of stuff about it. <laughs> um, yeah, it's super famous. There's music written about it and all sorts of things. Um, oh. Yeah. So there we are. Um, so Valpurgis Nacht, kind of ironic that that sort of this big day right before the May 1st that is going to be kind of the purif purification day. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, you could also see it as kind of the spirit of, you know, again, this is why it could sort of predate her a bit. You could definitely see it as kind of the the final gasp, right? The spirits of winter getting their last ditch moment mm -hmm. before summer comes in and kind of takes over, right? Um, so there are a lot of sort of things there. But yeah, so that's, so St. Walpurga is also, right, her day is May 1st. Um, and <laughs> Walpurga's knocked. Aha. Uh -huh. Yay. Awesome. Which is a good time. Okay. Um, so, May Day. When does May Day show up sort of as we know it? Unclear. I was, I read that Chaucer mentions maples. Mm. But he would be fairly, yeah. fairly late. Yes. Okay. Honestly. So first off, it's not actually, so the, the earliest mention of maples, it's not actually a poem by Chaucer. Somebody attributed it to him. Oh. It's a chance of dice. And he said, and this, it's an anonymous poem. Somebody attributed it to Chaucer, but it's, he probably did not, he did not write it. But it is contemporary to Chaucer. So yes, it's kind of the, it's the second half of the 1300s. Um, and it says at this point that a permanent maypole has been erected at Cornhill in London. Okay. So yeah, so that's the second half of the 1300s. Um, apparently there's a permanent maypole. That's been erected. So that's exciting. One of the early references we've got um, is from 1240. This is Robert Grosteste, who's super famous. Uh, he's the Bishop of Lincoln at this point. <laughs> he is, you know, that's what he's known for, but also he is already. Um, so okay. around 1240, maybe a little bit thereafter, um, he condemns May, May Day festivals, basically, um, or May games. Um, and specifically, right, he says... Um, he condemns miracle plays as well, uh, and also um, other games 
um, that they call the bringing in of May or autumn, mm-hmm. which is to say, right, May Day versus basically maybe Samhain, right? So the <laughs> um, the bringing in of of May, he is thinking this, right? The point is the beginning of summer, right? Mm. Um, so like leading in the May Queen or something, right? This is the beginning of summer. Um, and so these, the games, um, the lud- ludi. Yeah. Ludos, ludi, right? Ludus, ludi. Um, he's condemning these sort of, yeah, the festivals, the games, the, the pageants that are played out to honor the beginning of summer. Um, also the beginning of autumn, right? He absolutely sees these as tied. <laughs> he does not like them. He doesn't like any of them. He doesn't yeah. like miracle plays. He doesn't like any of it. Doesn't like it. Oh. Um, so that's one of the early, that's around the 1240s, right? So a hundred plus some decades, years later, when we get the poem, The Chance of Dice, um, at that point, I mean, clearly it doesn't stop people because at that point- Nobody listened to him. Yes, because at that point we have um, a permanent maypole, apparently. Right. I mean, probably lots of them, but yeah. <laughs> we have one in London, so yeah. It both makes you reflect that sort of if it weren't for like grumpy- old men writing letters to newspapers like how much of history would be lost yes but also like how little effect they seem to have on a course of history yes right which we are grateful for both of those things right it turns out we really need those records because always we wouldn't know that stuff is happening but also thank god they people don't listen (laughs) yes (laughs) right we need enough of a record we know it's happening already but we obviously don't want it to stop yeah this is very important. I mean, because absolutely, right? This is the problem. You know, the hawk days. We know about them because, you know... People were angry. Yeah. Carpenter calls them that and is like, yeah, stop this. <laughs> People need to stop this. Um, absolutely, right? That's that's yeah. always what happens, right? Um, and actually, Bruegel's um, engraving... I mean, he did the drawing, someone else did engraving, but... Um, there is speculation that he actually may have created it partly because there was an attempt at the time to stamp out things like hmm. St. George's Day festivals. Um, and that he, people are, you know, it's hard to tell with Bruegel because he is, as with Shakespeare, I mean, he, you can sort of be on any side of the issue. It can be hard to tell sometimes. Because um, mm-hmm. they don't tell you, right? It's all their people doing the stuff. So you look at this painting, people are sort of equally... I don't know, equally divided, but there's a strong factor for um, he is supporting the people in their festivals. There is also contingent that are like, no, no, he's showing that this mm. is kind of a stupid thing. I'm not necessarily on that side. I think he is showing the sort of fun and games. Um, but yeah, there's also, it's kind of debauched, whatever, you know, not terrible. <laughs> it's not like Hieronymus Bosch or yes. anything. But I mean, but you know, it's, it's, yeah, I mean, definitely it's a festival. Um but anyway, that it may have been done kind of in response mm-hmm. to trying to stamp them out. Yeah. So, yes. So people are always mad. Um, <laughs> the funny thing about May Day, of course, is that clearly, again, this is a tradition that's right. kind of syncretic, right? Um, things, you know, so in the British Isles, obviously, you've got Beltane. Um, and obviously, then across, you know, Christendom in general, you've got Flora, the goddess, you know, um, and the sort of remnants of Latin tradition, Roman tradition. Um, and then, you know, St. Walpurga is incredibly popular across sort of Germanic-speaking areas. Um, so all of these things kind of do get syncretized. 
I think we've talked a little before about German pagan veneration of trees, um, which I've seen. I've seen people yes. questioning if that's linked to maypoles. Yes. It does not seem to be, which is the yeah. really interesting thing, that maypoles do oh. not seem to be connected to that. Um, and it's also worth pointing out that um, there are a few reasons why it wouldn't have to be. One of them is that, of course, um, poles are just very useful, <laughs> very useful yeah. shapes for a lot of reasons, right? Um, you hang things from them, good and bad, right? You hang things from them that you want to honor, banners and stuff, right? You hang things from them you want to disgrace, like people. You know, poles are sort of important. But you might just... You might just want to have one sitting in your town. Yeah, but also if you think about, um, yeah, right, the, the idea of sort of having something there. Um, and then the other side, of course, of May Day is that it is mm -hmm. a festival. It's about its fertility. People go pick a ton of flowers and garlands, and they weave garlands and they wear flowers. This is the big thing, right? You weave garlands um, and you wear flowers. So... Um, a pole is the perfect structure to dance around mm -hmm. weaving, you know, to dance usually like streamers or something, but weaving yeah. garlands of flowers in and out, right? Around a pole. Um, so, yeah, it's just unclear exactly where it comes from. Um, it's It doesn't seem to be related specifically to any type of tree veneration. It does seem to be more oh. um, okay. the fact that it is a useful structure. To drape, to drape things from, right? Um, probably initially, it was more like you would collect all your garlands, you'd do all the stuff, and at the end, maybe you'd, like, tape them all over the pole. You think about the way, like, telephone poles today, um, less so because you see fewer of them, but in places where wooden telephone poles exist, um, mm -hmm. in cities, or even metal light poles, lampposts, oh, yeah. um, you will see posters taped all over them. Or staples all over them, right? Mm -hmm. And at some point, people come down and take everything down, and then they all go back up again, right? And some telephone poles have, like, layers of staples that are just, like... Yes. You know, yes. I mean, it's like an artwork, right? Um, and I'm sure lampposts with, like, just layers of tape, you know? Because just people keep doing this. Um, and I think that there is a sense of that, right? That where are you going to put all your garlands and your flowers after you've picked them all and you've had their fun and blah, blah, and you want to sort of dedicate them to the spring or to the summer, right? Um, if you're not going to burn them in a bonfire, what are you going to yeah. do with them? Tape them to a pole or rather tie them or whatever, right? Um, and eventually the idea that the pole itself would be important, not just as a place to like leave your stuff, <laughs> but that you would actually dance around it, that you would weave in and out, that you would make elaborate sort of garlands that would get woven up on the pole, um, that that probably kind of you know, came out of the initial need mm -hmm. to have a place to dedicate all of your flowers at the end, <laughs> right at the end of the festivities. Um, and this kind of brings us to everybody celebrates this. So um, commoners, nobility, everyone celebrates this. Nobility gets super into it. So um, Susan Crane has a book, Performance of the Self, where she has an entire chapter on maying and the types of nobility maying festivals, especially in France, where... Um, you know, there'd be, like, team flower versus team leaf. Okay. Be, like, the leaves versus the flowers. Um, and you'd have, like, your regalia, and you'd kind of have this mock pageantry. And, um, 
yeah, you know. So um, there's just tons of symbolism. And of course, flower symbolism, which we're not going to get into because we don't have time. But um, there's just countless flower symbolism in the Middle Ages, you know, so hawthorn and honeysuckle and, you know, willow, of course. I mean, but there are all these things. And so what do you use for May? And when if you're part of Team Flower or Team Leaf, mm-hmm. like what plant is your symbol for your team, basically? I see team. Of course, they weren't. This is modern sports reference. That's not really what's going on, but it is kind of what's going on. Um, but, you know, it'd be the nobility and then all of his, you know, whoever it is, right? The duke or the duchess or whoever, right? Mm-hmm. Then all of their liege ladies or lords <laughs> are on their side and they, you know, um, dress up accordingly. Um, but, you know, common people, you go into the woods and you pick flowers and you have fun. Um, and so Shakespeare, of course, um, by the time we Shakespeare, all this is super common, you know, I mean... Um, and Midsummer famously has a couple of references. Um, Lysander, Act 1, Scene 1, actually, when they're going to run away, right, Lysander and Hermia, um, he says, right, in the wood, a league without the town, where I did meet thee once with Helena to do observance to a morn of May. Oh. There will I stay for thee. Right, so he's going to meet her in her their normal May Day spot. <laughs> which makes perfect sense, right, for a play like Midsummer. Which, even though it's called Midsummer, seems to take place kind of around May Day, because in Act 4, Scene 1, I think? Um, anyway, when they're all found... Scene 1? I don't know. Anyway, when they're all found in the woods by Theseus and everybody. Um, and Theseus says, right... Oh, yeah. That is Act 4, Scene 1. We We just, um... I mean, like, contemporaneous us, not us in May when this goes up. Yes. Put that in the Valentine's Day episode. Yes. (laughs) Oh, right. There we go. Yes. Well, there you go. Um, So Theseus says, right, when they see all the lovers on the ground, um, in addition to the Valentine's reference, right, Valentine's is way past, of course, um, he says, Uh no doubt they rose up early to observe the rite of May. And hearing our intent came here in grace to our solemnity or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the rite of May, that they got up to observe the rite of May. This is his guess. Um, which is really interesting, because if we think of this is around May Day, hmm. you know, we're yes. all the fairies out on Walpurgis Night. Like, there's some really funny things going on. And of course, it's called right. Midsummer, but Shakespeare doesn't care about time, really. You know, <laughs> it's all allegorical or metaphorical. Um, but this is the idea, right? Yeah, so it's very much a love, right? Obviously, flowers, mm-hmm. you know, the birds and the bees and the flowers, right? Bees, bees and flowers. There's lots of pollinating going on. This is, of course, why people complain, because... You know, this seems very dangerous that these things are going on. Um, we should point out, so in addition to all of this stuff, um, and the sort of the general celebrations of flowers and garlands and sort of men and women courting and being on sort of opposite teams of leaves and flowers and so on, um, there's also, uh, this is a fun, weird part. This is sort of our last thing we'll talk about. But um, we sort of know, right, there's things like the May Queen Right, who basically symbolizes summer, you know, so one of the women might be elected a mate queen and she sort of gets to, you know, decide the revels. Obviously, if you're nobility, you know, the the, the most noble, you know, whoever's the highest class gets to decide what she wants to do. Um, but another side of that, mm-hmm. the mate queen isn't a, you know, necessary part of it. Like, that much later, she becomes very, very common. But she's not automatic earlier on. Um, but one of the things that does show up, particularly in France, 
um, are the couple Robin and Marion, who are a shepherd and a shepherdess, and are seen as kind of part of May Day celebrations. They are lovers in the woods. Pageants about them are kind of part of May Day. Um, Crane talks about this. Other people have talked about this. Um, what the relationship is between this Robin and yeah. Marion, and of course Robin Hood and Maid Marion, yeah. nobody knows. Nobody knows what that connection is. Um, it might expect, it might explain, like, Robin Hood in England is clearly based on the fact that there were real outlaws yeah. who did, like, live in the woods. Some of them were terrible men. Some of them were maybe less terrible, right? A little <laughs> bit more like, I don't know, Butch and Sundance or something. You know, they're, they may, they weren't necessarily great in real life, but they were kind of valorized, and you could imagine them being like Redford and Newman, yeah. and, you know. <laughs> they sort of turn up as, um you know, noble highwaymen in, in Shakespeare yeah. mm -hmm. from time to time. Yeah, so Hal, you know, and Henry IV kind of plays on that idea. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the, the masquerade, right? So, yeah, so there is a little bit of this sense. Um, so anyway, so there is there is this idea. Um, but of course, they fit... Maid Marian presumably does come directly from the Robin and Marian pageants, right? Um, she's a shepherdess who lives near the woods, like, you know, it's weird, of course, for Maid Marian and Robin and Marian mm -hmm. to be anywhere near the woods. But in the original sort of pageantry, that's where she comes from. That, is, that probably is where she comes from. Robin Hood and this Robin, it's unclear. You know, who knows? Um, mm -hmm. But this Robin and Marian, you know, so that might be where Marian comes from for Robin Hood, which is why we sort of confuse them. Right? <laughs> Robin isn't necessarily an uncommon name otherwise. Um, but anyway... So that might be where she comes from. But Robin and Marion, in this sense, they are this pastoral shepherd couple who are very symbolic of sort of, yes, fertility and the land and nature. Mm -hmm. And they are kind of the May king and queen on some level, right? And Marion, of course, is related to the name Mary. So we get this, you know, all the yeah. senses that are all wound up together, right? Um, and the most fun portrayal of this is in a play slash musical um, Adam Delahalle's Robin and Marion. He's French. Um, he's from Arras, just like Jean Baudel, who we talked about in the Christmas pageant. Um, Adam Delahalle's a little bit later, 1237 to 1287 or 8. Um, but he is also a member of the same, uh, kind of fraternity as Baudel was. Um, you know, he's a jongleur, mm -hmm. you know, or troubadour. He's a sort of singer-songwriter, um, slash playwright, but you know, um, and he writes this play, Robin and Marion. Um, he travels actually to Naples and Sicily with his patron, Count Robert II of Artois. Um, and he sadly dies there. So he dies abroad, um, which is really unfortunate. But he wrote this, he wrote Robin and Marion, um, for this audience abroad. Um, but he really clearly intended it to be done at home. He never saw, lived to see it done in Arras, but it was done in Arras after his death. Um, and obviously it's still around. We still have it. Um, it's a court performance, originally. I mean, he writes it for the court. It's sort of done at the court. So um, you definitely have women playing the women, men playing men, all of this. Um, but it's very much a sort of interesting allegory where Robin and Marion, who are the shepherds, are the heroes. Mm -hmm. And there is this knight in it who's evil. So the knight tries to accost Marion and she like holds him off the first time. She's like very witty, of course. Um, and then the next time he comes by, he like carries her off. And Robin is like really worried. Oh. He tries to go save her. But Marion actually gets out of it herself. Like, because Robin's kind of scared. It takes him a while. He's trying to round up his people to go save her. Um, but she gets out of it. 
you know, she tucks away. Um, yeah. But anyway, but the knight is clearly kind of evil. Um, and so there's, there's this very interesting sort of class commentary. Um, and, uh, he actually, Adam Della Hall actually does use folk music from Arras in some of the music. Um, ah, the music has been recorded, of course, by modern people. So hopefully it'll be on Spotify. We can put in the Spotify. Yeah. But there is some actual folk music from Arras that he dropped in that, um, you know, presumably most of his audience would have recognized, but the Count mm-hmm. and, you know, anyone else from that entourage would have recognized as being folk music from home, right? And of course, once it was done back in Arras, everyone would have recognized it. Um, so it is this very sort of pastoral moment, but it's very much, right, about, um, you know, shepherd and shepherdess and love in the forest and garlands, and they play a May Day game. So there are a lot of games associated with May Day, and not just, you know, making flower garlands and having flower pageants, but also just other games um, that would be sort of, you know, um, and like the ones they play where um, one of them is where you try, like Mm -hmm. someone is sort of the king or the queen and you try and make them laugh, basically. And if they laugh, they lose their position and the person who made them laugh gets to take it. Oh, yeah. We called that um, Honey, I Love You when I was in high school. Cool. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so there are a variety of games like that right it's those sorts of things you know they don't they do not do spin the bottle right but it is that kind of thing right all of those sort of games they don't do duck duck goose either right but it's that kind of thing right all these little games ring around the rosy right um those types of things that yeah we did do um as kids you know um they play some of those games, right? And so the sort of medieval equivalents, right? Um, yeah, so May games were also very much a part of this festival. Uh, and that's probably another thing. You know, there aren't necessarily, like, plays associated with it, except, you know, Adam Della Hall did write this Robin and Marion. Um, but there are, you know, games, the sort of general pageantry of... Um, all these allegorical kind of, uh, you know, improvs, pantomimes in mm-hmm. modern British lingo that would happen across Europe, where, like I said, you'd have flowers versus leaves, or you'd have different flowers sort of battling each other, or, you know, um, all of that is definitely, you know, part of this. So it's very much a, you know, um, sort of, yes, welcoming the summer fertility festival. Um, but with lots of sort of elements that we do kind of still have today, right? We definitely still have this thing about flowers. Um, you know, if someone becomes whatever queen, like prom queen, you know, a lot of times like you get a crown, but there might be like a garland or something. Mm -hmm. Like we still kind of have this weird (laughs) interest in garlands of flowers and, you know, um, I believe that, um... Well, when I was in college, I had a friend who'd transferred to uh, UW from Bryn Mawr, where they did a big May Day Ooh. celebration, including, you know, dancing around a maypole and probably, wow. like, tasteful feminist nudity and that sort of... Yes. You know, <laughs> it's Bryn Mawr. Awesome. <laughs> yep. I can I imagine, for sure, yeah. right? I'm actually a little surprised that all of the hippies that I lived with didn't have a May Day celebration, but I guess in Madison, what we have is Mifflin Street block party. Right. <laughs> Which is usually uh, right around that weekend. Exactly. You know, to each their own. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, the sort of funny thing is, um, I do think, 
I don't know. I mean, um, but the fact that Mother's Day, of course, is in May. It's it's usually like sort of the second weekend, right? So it's it's just far enough away from May Day. But it clearly has taken on a lot of the overtones, right? The flowers, mm-hmm. the stuff, you know, fertility, of course, you know. Um, but it's been also kind of tamped down into heteronormative, right? you know, <laughs> rules and regulations, right, for mothers. Um, and sort of the famous Brunch, story that I love mostly. of, yeah, because Kalamazoo, the big medieval conference is usually that weekend, Mother's Day weekend. And um, – the sort of story that I remember of um, a female scholar, brilliant female scholar, um, who, you know, on the way home from Kalamazoo with, like, um, her husband and a student, maybe some other people, um, you know, they all went out for lunch. <laughs> and, of course, it's Mother's Day, and someone came to the table and was like, you know, happy Mother's Day. Um, and the, the female scholar was like, none of us here is a mother. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and there was that because the person clearly looked at them and been like, "Oh, there's a man and a woman who could be like the parents of some of these other women there," but no, like those were all students, also who none of whom were mothers, and so, um, yeah. Anyway, so this sort of funny, like, sense, right? Of course, just that assumption, mm-hmm. um, and that is something, yeah, that Mayday, <laughs> Mayday was not not necessarily as. Uh, easily regulated, I guess. Yes. As as Mother's Day is today. Which is not to say we should not have Mother's Day, obviously. It's There's important. just no number of bottomless but. mimosas that's going to pay you back for, like, <laughs> all the nights that you were up for, like, five hours in the middle of the night being screamed at. Um. Yes. <laughs> I think that is true. Yep. But um, So, they, see, there you are. <laughs> I was trying to say, co-opt everything. Yeah, I know in... um. In some countries, in Thailand, the Mother's Day is celebrated on the Queen's birthday. Oh. Because she's sort of the mother of the nation, and Father's Day is the King's birthday. That makes sense. Yeah. Awesome. We wouldn't be able to remember that, though, if it, like, always changed with whoever was in office. Yeah. (laughs) Well, up until very recently, they'd had it. They'd had a Queen and King for, since, you know... World War Two, essentially. So. Oh yeah, no, no, I know. Yeah, but, exactly. Yeah. that's why that works better. <laughs> I mean, in England, if they had done that, I mean, I, there's barely anyone alive today who would remember. I don't think maybe no one alive today who would really remember it having been different. Right. You know what I mean? Like yeah. the last time it was a different day. <laughs> that's yeah. not true. Of course they would. Well, but Queen Elizabeth and Boomy Bull were like the two longest ser- serving monarchs, basically. Right. And yeah. Boomyable died, unfortunately. So it's yeah. just Liz. Yep. But yeah, she's been queen for meh? Anyway. <laughs> yes. I mean, more than silver at this point. 60 yeah. years. When was yep. her silver jubilee? I mean, that was already a while ago, right? Yeah. Anyway, so it's been a while is the point. Um, so, <laughs> uh, yes. So, you know. People would be hard put to remember at this point what the previous day was if if they had done it that way. Yes. Um, yeah. Anyways. Um, but yeah. So anyway. So there is. Those are our spring holidays. Mm-hmm. Um, the weird ones. And then also, of course, you know, as I said, May Day, which we don't exactly celebrate today, but also kind of still do because so many of these traditions are still around in different ways. Yeah. Um, prom, honestly. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, prom frequently happens at like the end of May or beginning of June. But even so, um, there are a lot of these ways which that those rituals still really stuck with us. Obviously, the flowers. 
Yeah. Um, as I said, Mother's Day in a lot of ways. So, yeah. I think what we can take from this is everybody wants to sort of have an opportunity to blow off some steam in the in this. One hundred percent. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You know, and yeah, spring break, obviously. Um, you know, Mardi Gras, <laughs> and then and then it turns out in England, Hacktide. Yes. Yeah. All right. Um. Yep. Well, margaritas Yay. for everyone. Um. I guess. Yes. Absolutely. All right. Mimosas, Bellinis. Yeah. I'm just thinking drinks. of all the, you know, brunch drinks. <laughs> drinks with champagne in them. Yeah. Yep. Why didn't a Cure Royale? I don't know. What else? Oh, Bloody Marys. There we go. Yeah. I was not as into that. I super love them. You can definitely get a Bloody Mary that is basically your entire brunch balanced on the rim, right? Like Yes. Yes. And I think it's awesome that she has been honored with a drink that is so good. <laughs> She totally deserves it. <laughs> Yay. So does a Bloody Mary um, honor the spirit that appears in the mirror when you chant her name? Or is it a reference to Mary? No, I think queen. Oh, the queen. Okay. I mean, I think the spirit in the mirror is probably also the queen. I don't know about yeah. this. I mean, I assume that's where okay. it comes from. I mean, I suppose nobody who chants it in the mirror expects Mary the first to show up. <laughs> I don't think that, but, um, but I assume that that is kind of originally where it comes from. Yes. And then the spirit in the mirror might be any number of other people now at this point. Right. But, but that is certainly where it yes. comes from. It makes it a lot more interesting of a, of a scene in your classic horror film. If somebody, you know, is chanting Bloody Mary and Qu- Queen Mary the first comes out and it's like, well, right. yes. Are you Catholic? Yes. <laughs> if not, you die. <laughs> Yes. Um, yeah, that would be awesome. Yeah. Okay. Someone must have thought of this. Um, and of course, you can have a Virgin Mary if you don't have alcohol. Yes. Yeah. Which is also kind of funny and awesome. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> we'll talk. We'll talk more about uh, drinks in another episode. Yes, we will. Actually, that episode will have been up by the time. Um, by the time this goes up, but we can always. Yes, we have yes. already talked about. We didn't talk about these, these specific, specific drinks. Mixed course. drinks, yes. All right. Yes. Uh, we're going to call it there. And podcast listeners can rate and review us on iTunes. And hey, tell a friend if you really enjoyed our podcast. That would be a great way to help us get more listeners and eventually take over the world, I assume, is the last step of this process. Yes. Um, you can check out the show notes on our website at askamedievalist.com. And you can use our contact form to send in questions. We also have a Facebook page where we post uh, news when our episodes go up and sometimes relevant articles. And we have a Twitter account that I think probably does some tweeting. Um... (laughs) We should, I should check on that. I, I think it posts um, news when our um, articles go up as well. And you can find all of these by looking up Ask a Medievalist. Uh, I think that's it. So uh, from frigid February, I hope that everybody listening is having a lovely May and uh, getting vaccinated and going outside and, you know, having a margarita made in your mouth. Yes. Maybe. I don't know. Uh, yes. Uh, maybe we're eating in restaurants. Oh my gosh. Now. Ooh. So uh yeah, whatever else happens, keep it 
keep it medieval. Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff, performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons Attributional Non-Commercial License version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com. 